You're listening to the Christian Single Moms Podcast. This is the Christian Single Moms Podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Donnelly, founder of Agape Moms, and I'm just really happy that you could join me today for this conversation. Here on the podcast, we emphasize discovering you on the journey through. And what that means is I believe that every single mom can discover a life of peace, power, and purpose. And I believe that she can do it right through the things that God is carrying her through in her season as a single mom. Today on the podcast, we're talking about rejection. We're talking about the pain that comes along with feeling cast off or discarded or not worthy enough. And I know that if you're listening to this, you've been through that, and maybe in really deeply significant ways. My guest today on the podcast is Kate Warman. Kate wrote a book called Thank You for Rejecting Me. And in this conversation, we're going to talk about rejection in its many forms, but then also the hope that actually can lie on the other side of being rejected. When we think about rejection, you know, very often we might think about things that have happened in romantic relationships. We might think about a divorce. We might think about boyfriends or relationships that just never really worked out or amounted to very much. But in rejection and in this conversation, we're going to talk about self-rejection and times where we may also minimize ourselves or run away from situations because we're just afraid of somebody else getting to the beating us to the punch, getting there first. We also talk about sexual rejection and sexual shame that may have come from things that have happened in the past. And we talk a little about the rejection of abuse and how to move through that as well. You know, what I love about Kate's perspective in all this is rejection hurts, and she doesn't minimize that at all. And she talks about ways that we can work through that. But she also talks about our mindset and how we can reframe rejection as opportunity to always turn back towards God and say, but what do you say? And the hope that lies in trusting a truly loving God in the midst of the most difficult, painful times of our lives. I have been a big time self-rejector, and it's not just from my relationships. It's from things that happened when I was a kid. And what self-rejection has looked like for me is overperforming and overachieving so that I wouldn't have to deal with any kind of negative feedback from anyone else. But then it was also in me just trying to meet everybody else's needs and me not have any needs of my own because there is rejection that comes along with expressing a need that's not met. And so by becoming completely self-sufficient, I managed rejection pretty well for a long time until I couldn't anymore. And for me, this journey of unraveling that has brought me so much freedom in being able to truly identify who God is who I am to him, how important my needs are to him, and then how to establish healthy connections with people to go about having those met and understanding in the times where they do not get met and where I get rejected that it doesn't mean that I'm not valuable still. It doesn't mean that that need is not valuable still. It means that I just need to move on and find the place where I fit. Not fitting is the core of our experience with loneliness. And loneliness is something that has many different causes and many different roots that each of us experiences a little bit differently. To help you with getting to the bottom of your root causes, I've developed a quiz called What's Your Loneliness Type? And if you'll take this quiz and it'll take just a couple of minutes, you'll get some insight into some of the things that you might be unknowingly 
doing that are causing you to experience long-term loneliness, but then also some of the ways out of that. If you'd like to take that quiz, all you need to do is go to www.agapemoms.com forward slash quiz. Before we dive in today, I'd like to tell you a little bit about Kate Warman. Kate Warman is an author, speaker, popular relationship coach, and the founder of Heart of Dating. She helps thousands of women and men on their journeys through the conversations on the Heart of Dating podcast, which launched in 2018. Through her ministry, Kate's mission is to empower both men and women to have the courage to own their story, walk in victory, thrive with purpose, and discover clarity and vision in their life and relationships. In her new book, which we're going to talk about today, Thank You for Rejecting Me, Transform Pain into Purpose, and Learn to Fight for Yourself, Kate vulnerably shares how she grew through her deepest, darkest rejections and offers readers the tools to heal from their past, take back their power, walk in strength, victory, and love, and into their future. Kate currently lives in Los Angeles and loves sunshine, walks, Jesus, and lip syncing to Celine Dion. I first discovered Kate and the Heart of Dating podcast about three years ago when my marriage ended, and I just didn't know where to turn. And Kate was the first Christian voice that I heard talking about any of these issues when it comes to dating in this modern world. And I have loved her take. She is so funny, so bright, so refreshing. And I just hope that as you listen to this conversation, you will be encouraged as well. Here is my conversation with Kate Warman. Kate, I'm super thrilled to have you on the show today. Thank you so much. Michelle, I'm so happy to be here. Hey, girl. <laughs> hey. <laughs> and you know, one of the things that I just love, your new book is all about rejection. And that is something, unfortunately, most of us single moms are familiar with. We've been down that road before. But I just love your heart in this. You have brought so much hope to an issue that otherwise could be pretty hopeless. And so I wanted to know if you would start us off talking about how we can look at rejection, reframe rejection, because very often we see it as something that's just kind of a defeat, but the way that you talk about it, you see it as a catapult really to our growth. Yes. And the thing about that, Michelle, I love that you bring that up is that, you know, I want to normalize that in the very beginning, rejection isn't going to feel like this amazing hope-filled thing. You know, when rejection initially happens, usually we're like, oh, it's painful. And my the point of my book, Thank You for Rejecting Me, isn't to say that you're going to be robotic, like superhuman that never feels the pain of rejection ever again in your life. That just won't happen. Um, but I, what I want to invite readers into with the book that I wrote is that you can experience rejection and you can still grieve it and experience all the feels that you need to feel through it. And that there's still hope on the other side of it. And that's just my life story. I have learned that in the past, when I didn't believe this, every one of my past rejections just almost was a confirmation bias that there's something wrong with me and that I need to seek approval and validation or I'll never be interesting enough or skinny enough or insert whatever enough or that I'm too much of XYZ, insert whatever that is. And so I finally reached a point where I was like, wait a second, this doesn't 
what if it didn't have to impact me the way it's been impacting me? Uh, mm-hmm. Because once, because I didn't properly heal from rejection, I didn't find and seek the hope through the rejections. Every future rejection just piled on top of one another. And it was like this disastrous self-fulfilling prophecy of just me believing terrible things about myself and then future rejections taking me down that much more. And so what I've learned though today in healing through our past rejections, which is a noble journey It is so hard. It's not easy to go through the crevices of the pain that we've experienced, but a noble journey that is so worthwhile to go through the depths of our pain and to find dust off our tools kind of thing and get new tools to be able to see ourselves in a new way and to fight through rejections. Um, And a lot of this is, you know, just a journey of discovering who we truly are and rewiring our own perspectives on ourselves. Because I think a lot of rejection has basically told us the things I said earlier, that we're not enough or we're too much or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. For me today, Day, I approach rejection knowing that it's going to happen. Like external rejection, it's going to keep coming. You know, it's like there's, I have no control over stopping that. And when we live in the fear of rejection, trying to avoid it every possible turn, it doesn't matter. It will still happen. You can try to have your grip on it, but no, it's not, it's going to happen. You don't have control over external rejections happening, but you can have tools to be able to fight for yourself within it. You can be able to see yourself still with clarity and with love and with grace and compassion. Rejection doesn't have to tear down your identity as it once did potentially in the past. And there is a way that through time, when we know the character of God, Michelle, we can understand like, wow, God doesn't cause those terrible things to happen. He's not like, he's not like here, insert pain, but he does allow things to happen to us. And we're not promised a life as a Christian of like sunshine and roses and butterflies. Like it's just not the thing, you know? Right. If we think of Jesus, he went through like insurmountable things and terrible things and faced the biggest rejection of all, you know, my gosh, that led to his own death. So we as Christians, we are to expect that pain and rejection, things like that will happen. But within that, God will redeem. We don't know when, we don't know how, but he will. And so as I've healed through my rejections, even when future ones come, I hold fast and true knowing that God's working behind the scenes to redirect me, to heal me, to redeem whatever that situation was. And I can cling on to that. I put my stake in the ground in that versus putting my stake in the ground, believing that I'm the worst or that my life is doomed or, you know, whatever, insert whatever the lie is, right? And Mm -hmm. so which one do we want to believe? And I just know the route of believing all the lies and being stuck in it. And I know how it was not serving my life. And I had to come to a place of saying, heck no, girl, Uh, I want to choose to have find hope. I want to choose that there's a better way. I want to choose that God is good, even amidst the pain. And so I believe that for other people too. And I, I don't say that from a place of not going through rejection, even to this day, because I yeah. even went through one last year, but yeah. yeah. Oh, that's such a whoo, like great way to kick us off. <laughs> I love oh, that. Right in, you know, and I love though your perspective about expecting it because it takes so much of the power away from it when we can just say, yep, I see it coming. But rather than trying to prevent it and I find make ourselves small or live really small, it's like, nope, I'm going to go live this big life. I know it's going to try and come for me, but I've got a God who's bigger than all of this and I don't have to be afraid of what's coming my way. Exactly. Exactly. 
Yes. Yeah. And and I, as you talk about rejections piling on top of each other, though, a lot of this stuff. So like for myself personally, my rejection, my, my journey with rejection did not start with my divorce. Mm. Obviously it was very similar, you know, to what you catalog in the book about things that start from childhood and these off little comments that get made and mm. ways that you start thinking about yourself. And God showed me in the midst of so much of this though, where after my divorce, I had been self-rejecting my whole life. And so you talk quite a bit about that in the early part of your book. And for listeners who are not familiar with the concept of self-rejection, I wanted to have you describe that a little bit and what that looks like, how we can maybe even unknowingly be shrinking ourselves down to reject ourselves so other people can't beat us to it. Yeah. And that's the thing. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you already believe bad things about yourself, then somebody who comes in and reinforces it, you, first of all, may be more willing to accept it, which is tragic Mm -hmm. and terrible. And that's my story. Or if you believe bad things about yourself and let's say you, you get the courage to put yourself out there, but you're still like, I don't believe I'm really worthy of whatever I'm putting myself out there for. And that thing turns you down. Then you're just like, your identity is crushed. You're like, well, I knew I wasn't worthy. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? It's so sad and terrible. And I live my life in that for so long. But self-rejections, the book starts out with the self-rejections because we really do. If we don't conquer our self-rejections, other rejections are, will take us down. It will. Yeah, so Self-rejections, so the biggest ones I think that we face are having to do with insecurity. And, and a lot of insecurity comes from body image and body shame, especially for women. It also happens for men, but just how we see our bodies, how we see our attractiveness, our appearance, ourselves, that creates really big insecurities in our lives that absolutely impact our confidence and how we're showing up. And then another big self-rejection is just our own self-hatred, the ways we're shaming ourselves internally. You know, when you like say something or do something and the person's response isn't exactly what you think it should be, or you just didn't like what you said, you're like immediately in your brain, you can start berating yourself. Like, why did you say it like that? Kate, you shouldn't do that. You're too expressive or you're too dramatic or you're too long-winded or, you know, whatever it is, we start berating ourselves. And like, that's self-hating. It's self-hating instead of just saying, oh, I, all right. Yeah. I was a little long-winded there. Okay. You know, there's like two different (laughs) ways of approaching it there. Um, Mm -hmm the more we shame and should ourselves into some sort of version of ourselves that we want to be, the less and less we're really connected to the core of who we are and who God created us to be. And so I am just really, we need to work through those things because we talk Mm -hmm. later in the book and I know this is your story too, Michelle, but if we believe those negative things about ourselves, it, I believe truly, and um, I, this is not an excuse for narcissism or abusers, but I believe that I accepted more of that treatment from my abuser years ago because yeah. I was already berating, criticizing, judging, belittling myself. So right. when someone else comes into the picture, of course, like logically, I know rationally, this is not acceptable behavior. Like I am, I know that, but because I already kind of believe it, I'm more likely and apt to stay and kind of accept it. Uh, because some part of me believes that it's true. Some part of me down in the core believes that it's true. And so, so needless to say, we have to work through these self-rejections. And then another way that self-rejection has shown up for me personally too, is when we fear rejection so much, what we often do is we'll just like jump from thing to 
thing before and leave it. Like leave the commitment, leave that thing, get out before that person can reject us because we're so fearful of it happening. Mm-hmm. And that's part of my story. When I was 16, I had like 16 boyfriends. I say that comically, but it's honestly true. And mm. I, why did I go through that many people? One, because I wanted validation, but two, um, because once I started feeling like, oh, this, I might be getting too close to this person or this person, maybe they're going to reject me and find out something they don't like underneath the surface. I was like, let me jump on to the next thing, you know, and I'm going to reject them before they can reject me. I'm going to leave this before I have to face what it means to be rejected. And that's not a way to live either (laughs) because we're Mm -hmm. never getting true authentic relationships um, or, and we're missing out on so much potential. So those are just a few ways that self-rejection shows up. (laughs) Well, and it's allowing ourselves to be loved. And that's scary. Like we're constantly staring in the face of rejection, but it's allowing ourselves to be loved. And I appreciate the point that you made about speaking hatefully to ourselves and then how it then may cause us to actually accept that behavior from somebody else. And I have experienced the very, very same thing where being unkind to myself then when I hear it out of somebody else's mouth, it almost feels familiar. It feels like home, which again, like you said, it's not an excuse for somebody to be abused. It's never an excuse, but we can understand where our power lies and saying, Ooh, but if I'm nice to myself, then I recognize when somebody else is not nice to me and I will never do that again. I will never walk down that road again. Yes, exactly. So as far as that self-hatred though, you talk about compassion being the counterpoint to that and that, you know, the role of compassion in, dealing with triggers that have to do with shame and these things that might cause us to self-reject. So share a little bit more about that. Yeah. So compassion, oh, it's just like so healing. Compassion is that ability to just see yourself as God sees you with love and kindness and grace. You know, that's to me what like compassion is. And so when we can walk away from shame and it's a journey to walk away from shame, the enemy wants to use it. And he's probably used it in our life for some time. It's like his favorite Mm -hmm. tactic because shame Mm -hmm. to me is just, it acts like a barrier keeping us away from God's love. And so the more the enemy can put shame blocks in our life, the less, God's love's there, but shame is blocking us from really experiencing the depth of it. So in order to combat the shame, we need compassion. We need the compassion will heal us from the shame. Compassion looks like saying, well, why, where did I find this belief system? Where did that come from? Mm -hmm. You know, normally when we have a belief about ourselves, that has that isn't brand new. It didn't just pop up on the scene like a new person in your life. Like this has probably been there for some time and it's most likely deeply rooted and it's formed a neural pathway in your brain that just seems normal at this point. And so we need to have curiosity and compassion to look into our stories and say, where did that come from? Where did this lie originate? Why, Why did I act that way? Why did that happen? Just starting to have compassion for our stories. And, and when we do see parts of our story where we, you know, we're sinning or we show up as our best selves, what we can do is look holistically and say, you know what? I see why she acted that way. I see why I was doing that. I see how that situation happened. I'm not going to shame myself for being like, you should have known better. You shouldn't have been that way, but I'm going to just have compassion and just say, you know what? We can move forward differently, but now I have grace and compassion for that version of myself, for that time in my life, for where this mm-hmm. lie originated. And sometimes the lie originated from other people. We, we can start having grace and compassion through time for the people that instigated 
perpetuated those lies, you know, Mm. Um, the people that spoke over us or our parents who just didn't give us the attention, the emotional attention that we needed. And you know what? Most of the time we're just all human beings doing the best that we can. And because of that, if you had, if you were in a tumultuous family upbringing, your parents probably are really focused on one another and their problems. And you probably didn't get all the emotional love and care and attention that you needed. We don't blame your parents for that. They're doing the best they can. They're certainly broken people, but we can have compassion for the, for where that happened for us and how that was really hard for us, you know, and that lack of true attention and love for my parents developed whatever tendency it was. It either developed an independence or it developed an anxiousness or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so there's habits that formed. And as we can trace our stories, we start developing, oh my gosh, an understanding and a compassion for why I've showed up that way. Now, when a trigger comes up, which it will, I mean, these things, as we start developing new neural pathways, like those are deep. They're like deep, deep, deep trenches and it doesn't happen overnight. And like I had my abusive relationship eight years ago and still Mm -hmm. there's things that trigger me back to the like... (gasps) because that was a really, really sharp, sharp wounding, deep, deep wounding. So I would be lying to say, Michelle, that I'm never triggered back to any sort of abusive scenario. Absolutely not. I still have triggers. It's just now my choice on how I choose to handle that trigger as it comes up. Mm -hmm. I think often in relationships, people are like, oh, you have a trigger? Oh my gosh, there's something wrong with you. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. no, there's not something wrong with me. Watch how I'm dealing with it. You know, like let's, let's look and I'm not perfect a hundred percent of the time. I'm not going to pretend. Right. Um, so you got to be honest with the person you're talking to dating, whatever, but like even just the recognition of I'm feeling triggered right now, something's coming up for me. That is a huge flipping step that a lot of people don't even know how to get to, you know, the awareness of like, I am feeling triggered. There's something going on in my body. I'm feeling a little off. That's a huge step. Man, congratulate yourself for that. Now it's your choice of what you do with the trigger. Okay. Mm-hmm. You develop tools to say, what it, where is this coming? You dev- like what's coming at me right now from this person and what's coming up from me. So what's coming at me? What's this person saying that's triggering me? And what's coming up for me? Does does that relate to anything from my past that may have happened Mm. to me? And so you start comparing those two things again with compassion and curiosity. And then once you're like, oh, this person not responding to my texts makes me feel abandoned or maybe that I can't trust them because I had an ex that did that, blah, 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 blah. Okay. All right. Now I look at the facts. What do I know about this person in front of me? What do I know Mm -hmm. about our history? Okay. Wait a second. There's not enough information here to say that that person really is trying to do something behind my back. Okay. All right. So let me take some deep breaths. Um, Let me speak the truth that I really want to believe in this moment about the situation. Ah, you can calm. And this can literally be done in like a few minutes. I'm like, it literally can be, but now, but without the compassion, without the curiosity, without some of the self-awareness, we won't, we'll have a trigger and we have no idea. We just are flailing, you know, and usually it comes out with either defense or shrinking down and hiding. It's usually Mm -hmm. one of those two things. And so, yeah. Um, so you'll see that when you know you're being really, really defensive or you're shrinking down, hiding, not saying that you're triggered and you're reacting some way, you know what I mean? Um, and so, yeah, I, so that's what I would say to that answer. It's a long answer. Yeah, no, that's really good. And I think the biggest thing, again, it's like back to accepting, except that yes, you will have triggers, except that these things will come up for you. The more you understand yourself, 
the more you're able to communicate with another person and say, hey, this is not your fault, but I'm feeling triggered right now. And if you need support to say, hey, I just need some support and to say what it is, yeah. that's how you actually determine whether people are safe or not. If you yes. if you can calmly communicate that to somebody and they're like, whoa, that's weird. Then you're like, ah, peace. Yeah. Like, this is not going to work out between us, you know? But everybody has their stuff. It's just, can I communicate it? Can I own it? Can I communicate it to you? And can you meet me in it? Yeah. And well, we can just break it down in that way like you did with action steps, it's not as scary, I feel. And it's much easier for us to be compassionate to ourselves. Now, another area though, where there's a lot of shame, where shame can try and grab us is in our sexuality. And many women who are listening have some kind of sexual pain, shame that's gone on from previous relationships. And it's something that you address in the book as well. And you talk about how redefining a sexual ethic actually helped you to cast away the shame and take your power back in this situation. Would you share with us just a little bit about that story? Yeah. So sexual shame, oh man, especially as Christians, I think that there's two ends of the spectrum here. A lot of us have been taught abstinence narratives and especially from the purity culture back in the day. If, and especially if you're some sort of millennial, you were definitely taught some sort of purity culture if you were a Christian. And um, I, I want to first clarify that all not all purity culture messaging is bad or like should be excommunicated. Like I think it has good intentions. I think that just some of the ways that it was carried out out, carried out ended up being really shaming, unfortunately, and ended mm-hmm. up turning into a lot of legalism. And mm-hmm. it didn't actually form a really true connectedness to individuals' hearts. And, and then what ended up happening is usually you have two ends of the spectrum there. You either have somebody who heard all the teachings and they're like, okay, I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to do anything. Sex is bad. If I do sex, I will die. You know, like that. Yeah, kind right, of thing. right. <laughs> and um, that kind of that individual now later in life is ends up being very disconnected from their body. I've actually dated people that, and I have compassion for them for sure, but I can totally see when they're just so disconnected from their body because I might touch their shoulder as a, mm. uh, the guy and right. they just are like so weirdly uncomfortable with mm. me making any connection point to them at all. Like holding yeah. hands is like a, whoa. And I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, okay. You're mm-hmm. so disconnected from your body, you know? Um, on the other hand, you have people that maybe heard the narratives and this is my story. I heard the narratives. I knew the rules and I still engage in sexual activity, but because I didn't feel like I had anywhere to share, I really felt like there wasn't a safe place because like the rules were so strict and it was like, do not do this or else. So I felt like I can't tell anybody, like I can't tell anyone that I did this. I just need to hide it. I need to keep it like safe over here, protected and, and hidden. And if nobody knows, it'll be fine. We could just sort it out together. But mm-hmm. you know, we were young. I, this is, and I didn't actually, I needed a place, a safe place to land somebody who would listen and be compassionate and empathetic. I didn't have that. And so because of that, it really formed a lot of um, shame. Again, the shame that's separating me from God, separating me from my body and just mm-hmm. making me feel dirty, making me feel used, making me feel less than because I was engaging in sexual activity. Now, as the church, I think we unfortunately do this. We put any sort of sexual anything on a pedestal. You know, It's like somebody engages in sexual activity before marriage and we're like, oh my 
gosh, like, how dare you? And I'm not saying we should be doing those things, but I just think I sometimes laugh and and say, and I'm like, we put it so high up there and we're so in shock, but like somebody's lying or they're like gossiping or whatever else. And we're like, meh, you should do better. Yeah. 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 Skate Mm -hmm. over that. We hardly even call that one out to be honest with you. I'm a believer of abstinence. Absolutely. That's what I'm Mm -hmm. practicing. However, we just put it so high up there as this pinnacle of like pridefulness. But yet don't talk about it. Like don't teach us how to engage in it correctly. Don't teach, don't, don't have any kind of like share your feelings, share your thoughts. It's just like, here it is. Don't do it ever, (laughs) ever or else. Like, right. It's like, and I think there's other mixed messaging there, especially for women. And and I'm passionate about this. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of messaging that also was like basically leading to the fact that it's a job for a woman to mitigate a man's lust. Like don't make mm-hmm. your fellow brother stumble that the ma- the male is the sexual being that the woman is more asexual and that women, we have to help the men who absolutely cannot control their sexual desires. I, first of all, just need to say that I feel like that's so flattening to the male species. Like Mm-hmm. I think that's so flattening to say that a man can't control his sexual desire. Like, yeah, that's good. wait a second. Like this person has the mind of Christ. They have the mind of Christ, which includes self-control. So we like, and how are we? No, that's flattening to them. And I want to be empowering to them that they can have the mind of Christ and have self-control. And then, but in that messaging, it puts so much pressure on women. And um, that if a man advances towards me, it must be because of something I wore, something I said, my body language. And it's my job to make him not do that, you know, and that unfortunately is some of the messaging and that was the messaging I received. So that unfortunately then led me later in life to being sexually assaulted more than once. Actually, I shared though about one time in the book and never identifying it as sexual assault and rape actually, because I was like, it's my fault. And the first case that this happened, I knew the person. It was a it was a friend, and um, quote unquote, I thought it was a safe person for me. And be- when that all happened, I was like, "It's my fault." I clearly sent him the wrong signals. This, that, and the other. Let's not talk about the fact that I did tell him I didn't want that and it still happened, right? But even mm-hmm. because of all this messaging, all of the shame, I just was like, "It's my fault," and I didn't tell anybody about it for years mm-hmm. on end. I didn't tell them. And um, it wasn't year until years later. And even when someone said, no, I think Kate, that is rape. I was like, no, no, it's wow. not. It's not. Mm-hmm. How can it be that? Like I knew this person, I had been drinking like all these things. Like I pushed so far against that because the shame was so deep that I felt like it was my responsibility. And so you had allowed it to happen. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that is that the point is we need to have safe places to not see our sexuality and our sexual desire as sinful or like our sexual desire isn't sinful. Um, mm-hmm. our, us as sexual beings, that's not sinful. That's beautiful. God created all of it and said all of it was good. We need to remove and, and get rid of the shaming narratives and come into a true and right and beautiful and good understanding of our bodies, our sexual desire, why God created us this way and how it's good. And once we can do that and deconstruct all of that, like then we can ask like, what do I want to believe about sex? What does God say about sex? Um, Mm -hmm. How do I work to start believing that for myself? What is it that I want to practice so that I can keep whatever commitment it is between myself and God in place? Because that will help you in dating to actually adhere to 
abstinence, if that's what you're choosing, right? If you're choosing abstinence, it needs to be deeply connected from your head to your heart. And it has to be walking out of a place of, I honor and respect God. I honor and respect myself. I honor and respect this other person. And out of an overflow of all of those things, that's why I'm choosing to not engage. But here's the deal. Having a tempting thought because you think your boyfriend is hot, that isn't the sin. The sin is acting upon it and Mm -hmm. then engaging with all of that. Right. But that's normal. If you had a thought, like I want to make out with that, this person that I'm interested in, that isn't bad. I think I just want to say that really quick because that thought is not sinful. The thought is not sinful. It's acting on that, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and where you allow your thoughts to go with that. But like the actual desire, God created that desire. Okay. And if you're going to be with that person, you want to be sexually attracted to them. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yes. (laughs) Stephen Furtick did a sermon once I thought was so helpful. And he just talks about like fire in a fireplace is fantastic, right? We, we love to sit around it, but fire in the middle of your living room is burn your house down. So it's not that we need to be afraid of fire. We just need to learn where it goes, you know, and what is good about it in the right context. And I, I have found the same thing though at Part of this is also, though, in taking back your power over things that have happened to you in the past is making a new commitment between you and God and then keeping that promise to yourself and how good that feels mm. to keep that in the forefront. And that, you know, when there have been things that you feel like you allowed or things that you're not happy about or proud of or whatever, like those have passed and they can actually be the thing to help you solidify a new choice for your future to say, all right, that's the past. This is where we're going with it in the future. Yes, girl. Yes. Amen. I'd like to take a short break from our conversation to mention our sponsor, Faithful Counseling. Faithful Counseling is Christian counseling that is available on the go. And it works through an app where you are able to schedule video sessions or just chat with your counselor throughout the course of the week. And I found that having the combination of Christian teaching and counseling together was so encouraging and so healing for me. If you have been considering Christian counseling and you would like to give Faithful Counseling a try, you can get 10% off of your first month by going to getfaithful.com forward slash single mom. Now, when it comes to abuse, you talk about the book of Proverbs. And I found this illustration was so helpful for me. I mean, I've read tons of books about abuse and domestic violence, but I love the way that you conceptualize how we can figure out basically from the book of Proverbs, you know, what we're dealing with, who we're dealing with, and then create appropriate boundaries. So highlight that for us. Yeah. Oh girl, this is so my thing. And what I, I forget who it was that first told me about this. Cause most of the things I've learned in the book have been through my experiences and people along the way and just amazing voices. But yeah, so this is the deal in an abusive situation. We so want that person to be different. We so want that person to treat us well. We want them to see things the way we see things. And the reality is they just function on a different scale than we do. And we can try all day long to beg them to see things the way we do, to beg them to change, to beg them to get healing. Oftentimes the reason why they're so abusive is because they need a lot of healing (laughs) and they have a lot of brokenness in their own life. Um, And I have compassion for that. I'm just not going to date that. You know what I'm saying? That's right. Um, That's right. But but we so often, especially if we're already entangled it, we're just like, please, please, like don't treat me this way. Please get help, please. And, you know, we want to beg and we want to bargain with them. 
but they're not, nothing we can do in that case is going to make them change. And here's a good litmus test to go into what you're talking about. In the book of Proverbs, it talks about thinking about the kind of person you're dealing with here. And there's three, typically there's three different kinds of people. There is a wise person and a wise person is heeding your advice, taking action and actually walking in that direction. So they don't just say, I'm sorry, or you're right. And actually narcissists can do this. Does a side oh, note. Yeah. Like, narcissists mm-hmm. definitely can play the part of like, oh, they need an I'm sorry right now. Okay. I will give them that false promise uh, right. because they're master manipulators, you know? So right. they're just the right amount of quote unquote vulnerable, the right amount of apologetic, just so that your heart feels like, oh, oh my gosh, I mm-hmm. feel a little bit seen. But the, right. the, the, the point here is you need to watch their action. Like what are they actually doing? And what is their action showing you through time? A wise person is going to heed the advice and actually start walking in the direction of healing and strength. They're going to be walking in the way of Jesus, you're going to see fruits of the spirit in their life. Okay. Mm -hmm. Then you have the fool. A fool is somebody who just is not going to take your advice. They're not going to listen. No matter what you say, their actions show that they are not actually choosing healing and health in their life. Okay. So that's a foolish person. And then there's lastly, a wicked person. And the the Bible says with the wicked person that you should flee at all possible cost. The foolish person though, is oftentimes we're either dealing with a foolish or a wicked person when it comes to abuse. The foolish person is going to really make make it seem like they're maybe willing, but they're honestly not. The, at the end of the day, you can see through their actions. They're not willing to move at all. And so what happens is you keep trusting this foolish person and you become the fool, right? Because you're the fool because you keep trusting that this foolish person is going to change. So a foolish person, the best thing to do is just pray for them and walk away. The wicked person, if they are just clearly narcissistic, abusive, manipulative, you see, we, you, there is no absolutely zero reasoning. You need to actually, the Bible commands us to flee at all costs and absolutely just get out of there, get out of there. Right. Um, and there's varying levels of kinds of abuse and abusive people. And some people are like really terrible abusers. Some are just more toxic, manipulative people. And there's a scale of that. But most right. of the time, they're both falling in the category of either a foolish person or a wicked person. So the litmus test is, are you truly, truly dealing with the wise person here? If you're dealing with a wise person that actually shows that they're taking steps in a healthy direction through time, we can work with that right? Because a red flag may come up, but if Mm -hmm. you bring that red flag up and they're like, okay, this is great knowledge. Thank you. I'm going to work on this. And then they schedule the therapy session or they actually start reading the book on it and they start changing things. And they're sharing with you the things that they learn. We can work with that. Okay. This red flag is turning into an orange flag, which eventually turns into a green flag. Okay. But if you spot a red flag, you bring that to their attention they say apology, but then they take legit zero action in their life. You're dealing with a foolish person and friend, you got to get out of there. Like truly you got to get out of there. Yeah. I love that so much because I think sometimes too, we get caught in feeling like, well, could they change? Do they know they're doing it? You know, the intention of their heart. And it's like, no, they're either a fool or they're wicked. And either way you're supposed to get out of there. So if you're, if you're dealing with a wise person, it's going to be obvious because they have a commitment to being self-aware. They have a commitment to growing in their relationship with the Lord and a person who is foolish or a person who's wicked does not. Mm -hmm. And so their intention or the 
position of their heart doesn't really matter in that case. You're going to be unequally yoked. You're going to be in an unhealthy spot. And you're right. hundred percent. The Bible tells us get away from people who are like that because it's more likely to corrupt you and take you down rather than you change them. Amen, girl. There's a great <laughs> book. I just want to recommend side note. Obviously you can read my book, but another great book that is by my friend, Gary Thomas. And he, it's a book called when to walk away from toxic people. And he mm-hmm. touches on some of this too, about like, how do you recognize that this person, the best thing you can do is literally just pray for them and walk away. Like when you recognize that they're not a person that's willing, that's growth minded, you know, we try mm-hmm. as Christians, we're like, believe the best, but like Jesus and all these things. And I'm like, Actually, also, I love that Gary puts it. He's like, if you, you are, you are purposed by God to be on mission for him and by engaging with the toxic person and making them your mission to help, you're being taken away from your true God given kingdom mission. And actually he goes as far as to say is that can be sinful when we are like only focusing on this person, we are actually moving away from what God's really calling Mm -hmm. us to do. And that isn't right. That's not what God wants for us. And so not everyone is our missionary project, you know, or our, our project to fix. It's not my job. It's not my job to make them want to change. (laughs) Right. 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 And having those standards, though, is another way that we, instead of rejecting ourselves, that we love ourselves in, in having these boundaries of people who are allowed in our space and people who are not. So I appreciate so much that you highlight that because I think it's so critical and now in this, as we're talking about rejection and you mentioned at the beginning, yeah, rejection is going to be painful. And I love, I'm big on permission. A lot of times when people have been hurt, they just don't feel like they have permission to care for themselves. Yeah. They feel like, well, I'm just supposed to plow through. I'm supposed to put on the happy face and, you know, say whatever it is that everybody says, and you know, it is what it is or whatever, and then keep moving. And you give very clear permission to grieve it, mm-hmm. but to have hope in the process. Yeah. And so you talk about a concept called hopeful grieving. And so I want to know if you would talk a little bit about what that looks like. So I think a lot of times as Christians, we want to like, we admit our pain a little bit. We're like, yeah, I'm having a hard time, but God is good but God is so good and I'm going to be fine. And we just have this weird like knee jerk reaction that we have to like tie every sentence with this perfect Christianese silver bow. And I just don't think we need to anymore. You know, I want to invite people into just being real about where you're at and put a period at the end of the sentence, which is, Hey, I'm having a hard time right now and I'm grieving and I'm questioning a lot in my life, period period. Now, it doesn't mean you're walking away from faith. Saying that doesn't mean I'm... It's just, that is where I'm at. Saying, but God is good is only trying to make the other person feel comfortable. (laughs) It doesn't mean that you don't believe that. It doesn't mean like, I don't believe Mm -hmm. that necessarily. It's just, can I be real truly with the status of my heart and invite other people to come alongside of me as I actually grieve? And I think when we don't actually give ourselves full permission to grieve, we leave little bits of the pain within us and it doesn't actually fully get worked through. And which is why it's so important to literally feel all the feels and go through the waves of the grief. Um, In the book, when I talk about hopeful grieving, 
what I found is that you can fully grieve and make space for all of the feels and you can still cling within that to hope. Because what I don't want to people to do is just feel all the feels and grieve, 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 and then get stuck in places like depression or anger and sadness. There's definitely the process to grief of like moving through the layers and not getting stuck in one layer too long because that can create negative things in our bodies actually. But when we can go through the layers and also cling to hope, the hope meaning, hey, hope is not an absence of pain, that God does not promise us that we won't have pain in our life. Um, As we talked about even earlier here, I mean, Jesus went through the biggest rejection of all, and we are called to expect that pain will happen to us as Christians and and standing up for our convictions. Like that, We will have people that don't agree with us and that want to fight against us. And the enemy is truly at work and we live in a fallen world and all the things, right? And so pain is going to happen. God doesn't cause the pain. He sometimes allows for it to happen for a greater purpose. And if we can truly, hope is really knowing the character of God, which is good. He is good. He's a good God. And I don't have to say that on the end of my sentences to still believe that in my Mm -hmm. heart. So within the hopeful grieving, I'm allowed permission to cry, to scream, to be angry, even with God at times and invite him into all of that. And still cling at the same time to a hope that through time, I don't know how or what way or like what timing, but that he's working through this because his character is good. And so the hope is a promise and an expectation of some sort of future good that will come. Don't know when, don't know how, and it could be a very long time, right? But uh, but I know that some way God's going to redeem this. And um, if you're having a hard time even sinking into that. If you're abused, if you've been abused and you're like, but when, but like, how will, when will I ever see the other side of this? Um, One thing that's been helpful for me is to think back to some point in my life where God has showed up. Because I think we need to personalize God's goodness for us. Like we can read the Bible yeah. and I love it. Like look at his character in the Bible and all the times he came through for like Joseph and for so many and Job even and unthinkable. I mean, he's like the ultimate martyr, but like, you know, so many people in the Bible, he came through for them. And that's mm-hmm. awesome. We want to read the Bible. We want to be in the word, but then I want you to personalize it. Where has he shown up for you at some point in your life? Um, I'm sure you can think of something where he has just shown up for you and has shown his goodness cling to that because that's his character for you specifically. And so in the in this worst case scenario, um, he will redeem it through time. He's still, his goodness is still true. And um, it, we don't know when or how, but clinging to him, some of his goodness will just be revealed through the healing. Some of his goodness will just be you gaining your heart back, you gaining yourself back, you learning about him again, you know? And so I know that pain is so hard. I am not, none of us are exempt to it. And I know that you can cling to the hope within the pain and there really can be both. Mm, that's so good. You know, and I think the thing that helps me always is to know that when the Bible talks about hope, it doesn't talk about this like wishful thinking kind of hope as how we use the word hope. <laughs> it it really is talking about that this is an assurance of something to come in the future. And so if we can know all those promises that he is good, he is for us, and that that is all waiting ahead for us, we know there's process to get there, but that is all just lying. It's lying ahead for yeah, us. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> Kate, this has been so good. I'm so, so thrilled that we got this time together. 
At the end of every interview, I ask the guests the same question. And it is, if there was just one more thing that you would want a single mom who's listening to know, what would it be? This is my prayer for myself. And so I'm just going to share with all your listeners that um, God has been speaking to me the prayer of just as you are, which is just this breath prayer that I speak over to myself before I do any sort of speaking thing um, or before we're on a day that I feel less than for any reason. And I say to myself, nothing more, nothing less, just as you are. And when it comes to single moms, you don't have to be anything more. You don't have to pretend to be anything less. The right person is going to love you and embrace you and your entire story and your full situation. And you can have the hope that like, if marriage is in the cards for you and your situation, that person will accept that wholeness of you. So you don't have to be more. You don't have to be less. You can be exactly as you are. And you will. you are already loved just as you are. So yeah, that's what I would say. Yes. I'm going to grab right onto that. Thank you so much. (laughs) Kate, tell listeners about Heart of Dating, your resources, your book, how they can follow along with you. Yay. Yes. I'm on Instagram. I love using that platform. Kateness, which is K-A-I-T-N-E-S-S or Heart of Dating on Instagram. Also our podcast, Heart of Dating. We have a community on Facebook. My book's available wherever books are sold and it's so exciting. Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> so yeah. awesome. Or you can go to thankyouforrejectingme.com if you just want to see which sites it's on. It's also, you can get on Amazon Prime, Prime to your house. Okay. In two days, it's on Audible, which is really fun because I narrate it. And I, I think that just before yep. this, I was like showing my mom how to download it. She's like, how do I do this Audible thing? Like, she's like, feel, you know, older people. I love her. She's like, I don't understand. I'm like, mom, we got it. And she finally, it took 15 minutes and we got it. But she's going to listen to me and her card now, which is really fun. So, That's so yeah. Good. So all those things, I'd love to connect with your people. Yeah. And I'll put all the links in the show notes to make it easier yeah. for our listeners to connect with you. But thank you so much for joining me Thanks, today. Michelle. This was awesome, girl. <laughs> Kate touched on something so pivotal in this conversation. And she said that Jesus experienced the deepest rejection possible. And yet through it, the beautiful gift of salvation and eternal life came to us. And I know that rejection is not easy to go through. And as Kate said, there are layers of these things that Whether you're dealing with current rejections or past rejections or childhood rejections, sometimes these things just seem so overwhelming. But the beautiful part of knowing that Jesus knows what it is to be rejected, He knows our hearts, is that He gives us compassion, but then He also gives us power. And He gives us power to overcome those rejections, to experience a new, beautiful life in the future. As we wrap up today's episode, I do want to point out a couple of resources available in the show notes. The first is our private Facebook group, Beloved Collective. Going through the issues and things that we're dealing with as single moms in community is so valuable. And so if you'd like to join the Facebook group, all you have to do is search for Agape Moms on Facebook at Agape Moms, and then click on the groups tab there and submit a request to join the group. Likewise, if you would like to follow along with Agape Moms on Instagram, you can search for us at Agape Moms. Additionally, I now have a weekly 
video guided scripture meditation available for every episode of the podcast. And if you subscribe to the Agape Moms YouTube channel, you will receive notifications when those videos become available. And it's just a great way to start off your day with some encouragement from God's word and apply some of the things that we're learning here on the podcast. I also want to thank you for your subscriptions, your rankings, your reviews. It's so encouraging to me to see what God is doing in your life and to see Him on the move, but it also helps other women to be drawn in to just what God has for them here as well. And as you move through the rest of your day or your evening, I just pray that you would know that you are seen and you are beloved.